Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 3. So we'll give our attention this evening to verses uh, 1 to 4. Figured there's no reason to rush this. God has given us this word for a reason, and it is full of um, much wisdom if we would but take the time to hear. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. My son, do not forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. Give us hearts of wisdom as we seek your Son, in whom the treasures of wisdom are found. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for the past few weeks, I've been uh, rereading my way through uh, Homer's Iliad. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's an epic narrative in its own right. Of course, the great story of the rage of Achilles, set against the backdrop of the siege of Troy. Uh, But for the youth of Athens in the classical world, Homer's Iliad and even Homer's Odyssey was much more than that. Uh, The great conqueror, Alexander the Great, was said to have slept with a copy of uh, the Iliad under his pillow, mimicking and imitating scenes as he sought to conquer the known world. What we find is that the Iliad and the Odyssey functioned in the ancient world much like uh, perhaps Shakespeare functioned, or at least used to function in the early modern and modern world. These were stories that were ingrained uh, into the hearts and minds of young students that were intended to give them a paradigm, a, a pair of spectacles through which they could see the world, through which they could understand how it is that they are to live in society, relate to one another, and even relate to God or in the pagan world to relate to their pagan deities. Well, for Christians, we find that the Bible is intended to function the same way. In fact, in in many ways, more so. But I think Proverbs, in particular, holds a special place in this particular way. Paul tells us that the Scriptures have been given to us so that we would have all that we need for life and for godliness, both for this life and for the world to come. And there's that great tension, that great temptation to, to focus on one to the exclusion of the other. Uh, you've heard of uh, those famous slogans that one might be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good, or one is so earthly minded that they're of no heavenly good. We have to remind ourselves that Scripture has been given to us to prepare us for the world to come, not through the neglect of the things of this life, but through this very opposite, by preparing us for how we should navigate this present course of existence. The book of Proverbs instills principles pertaining to this present life, but always keeping the matter of the life to come as our end goal and destination. We might put it like this, Proverbs prepares us for the next life by guiding us through this life. You read uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, 
And the whole allegory is about navigating through uh, the tempest and storms of this age that we might reach the celestial city. And again, as we've seen these past weeks, as we've begun working our way through Proverbs, the context for this training, for this paideia, this instruction in discipline, is not found in the academy, but it is found in the family of God. It is found in the church. And here, chapter 3 confronts us with what we might call the practical effects of wisdom in this life. As one commentator puts it, that here in chapter 3, these first 12 verses, we are called to contemplate the fruit of a thoroughgoing godliness. And it's seen in these opening 12 verses, and like I said this evening, we'll only focus on the first four, but it's seen in this alternating pattern of commandment and promise that permeates this particular section. As, there, as the father speaks to his son, as Solomon speaks to the messianic heir to the throne, my son, do X. For in doing X, the promise is laid out. A series of commandments and promises. And I thought that rather than trying to take this in one chunk, we uh, would do best to slow down and consider these over the course of the next two or three lessons. Tonight we'll take verses 1 to 4 in two parts. First, we'll consider the matter of life in verses 1 and 2. And secondly, the matter of favor in verses 3 and 4. Again, noting even within those verses, this alternating pattern of command and promise, command and promise, life and favor. Solomon begins by saying, once again, my son. Again, reminding us of the context. Here's a king speaking to the heir. Do not forget my Torah, my teaching. I think we're immediately confronted with the mosaic imagery. If you recall Deuteronomy chapter 17, as the law of the king has been given to the people of God, one of the things the king was required to do was to get a copy of the book of Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant, and make a copy of it for himself and meditate on it day and night that he might lead the family as a nation in all that God has promised. And so we should not be surprised that permeating the book of Proverbs, as much as it sounds like it is riddled with common sense, and it is, in one sense, given much common sense, a, a common grace sort of wisdom, we have lingering in the back of Solomon's thought the language and the imagery given to the people of God in the book of Deuteronomy. Notice here in verse one, my son, do not forget my teaching. Quite literally, again, do not forget my Torah. And then in verse 4, inscribe it on tablets, not of stone, but inscribe it on the tablets of the human heart. Our attention is turned immediately to Sinai, not just Sinai, but Moses' final words to Israel. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. I think this is important to have before us what it is that I think Solomon is, in fact, uh, uh, modeling uh, for the people of God. Now, if you recall, the book of Deuteronomy consists of Moses' final three farewell sermons to the nation as they are about to enter the promised land after 40 years of wilderness wandering. 
Of course, the sum of the book is really found in chapter five, uh, where Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments and begins to apply the Decalogue to life in the land. The people learn those principles of what life looks like to live in the wilderness, but now they are to learn those same principles and apply it to life in the land. And now summarizing at the end of chapter 5, we begin to make our way into chapter 6. This is those first seven verses. I'll uh, kind of read through portions of it, but I think it's critical to have this before us. Moses says, now this is the commandment. In a sense, he is summarizing the Decalogue as he uh, has already preached in chapter 5. Why? That it may go well with you in the land. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sound familiar? This is the great commandment. The summary of the law. But then notice what he says right after that. These words shall be on your heart. You shall inscribe them on your heart. Verse 7, and what else shall you do? You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of these things when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now imagine what it would be like to be the king of Israel, to have this book where you had to inscribe, uh, make a copy of this book yourself, and here is the summary of the law. What are you to do? You're to teach it to your children. Here, what do we see going on in Proverbs 3? We are seeing the king of Israel doing this very thing, modeling what it is uh, for his own family, the very thing that Deuteronomy 6 commands. My son, do not forget my Torah. My own teaching here is a picture of what we call catechesis, instruction in the faith. My son, do not forget what the Bible says. This is what we see Solomon saying here in these open, opening verses of chapter 3. Inscribe God's commandment on your heart. Teach your children to do the same as the Lord told Israel through Moses, to love him that it may go well with all of you as a nation. And here Solomon begins to enact uh, and model for us what we might call a picture of divine baby talk. Calvin talks about this in the Institutes. It's a great image that he gives that when God speaks, he condescends to us uh, with with a nursing lisp as a mother does uh, to her newborn child. I remember a, a number of years ago, uh, some of my friends from college, they had recently been married, and they just had their first child, and I went to go visit them in the hospital, and I walked in to see baby Dominic. Dominic is about four hours old, and I, and I, and I looked at Dominic, and, and I got to hold him. I said, Dominic, what is justification? Wasn't really able to answer me quite yet, and I, I turned to his father, my, one of my good friends, Johnny. I said, Johnny, you're failing as a father. He's been alive for four hours, and he's not able to tell me uh, the words to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? There, there's a certain level of expectation that we have in various degrees of our stage in life. You would not expect a four-year-old necessarily uh, to have memorized the whole Shorter Catechism, and yet at the same time, there are certain things that by the time they're four or five, you, are, you have been able to instruct them in. You know, think of, uh, for example, Westminster Larger Catechism, question 15. What is the work of creation? 
The work of creation is that wherein God did in the beginning by the word of his power making of nothing the world and all things therein for himself within the space of six days and all very good. That is a great terse summary of the doctrine of creation, but yet it is a mouthful even for a 40-year-old pastor, much less for one who is uh, only five or six years old. It's a rich, robust doctrine, but trying to get a four-year-old to memorize, that is not impossible, but it might come with certain difficulties. Now, I want you to compare the larger catechism with, for those of you who are familiar, uh, the kid's first catechism. Who made you? God. What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things? For his own glory. How can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Now this actually articulates the exact same doctrine that the larger catechism, question 15, did, but in a simplified form, something that younger kids can take those basic principles that they can learn to grow in so that they can make it from the kid's catechism to the shorter catechism, perhaps even to the larger catechism as they grow in age and maturity. It's the same doctrine made digestible. It is theological baby food. It's a good thing. Remember, Paul and Peter speak of, of, of young Christians being uh, 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 weaned on the milk of the word. Paul speaks to uh, the church saying that some churches still need to go back to milk rather than meat. Um, we have to think through that, what we call that language, that, that doctrine of accommodation, to accommodate what the Bible says to the hearing and capacity of its listeners. Well, might I suggest to you that Solomon seems to do the same thing here in Proverbs that we're talking about. If we might call the book of Deuteronomy uh, the Bible's larger catechism, Proverbs is my first kid's catechism. My son, do not forget my Torah. Daddy, what's Torah? Oh, it's what God has commanded us through Moses. Remember the same thing you see, that same basic principle at work every year when Israel under the Old Covenant was to celebrate the Passover. And when your child asks, Daddy, why are we doing this? You can tell them because the Lord has, had brought us out with an outstretched arm. Solomon is, I think, modeling for us as the great king what it looks like and how it is, setting forth a model how it is that we are to train our children. And it does so by instilling the same basic principles, not watering down the Bible, but giving it indigestible chunks. He says, my son, do not forget my Torah for, in keeping this, there will be length of days and years of life and peace. Isn't that the same thing that Moses said at the end of Deuteronomy? Choose this day whom you will serve, be it life or death. And then Moses writes out the book of the covenant curses and has them uh, repeat what those covenant curses are. What are those covenant curses? Death, plague, disaster, ultimately leading to exile from the land. It is the very lack of life and peace. Well, Solomon here gives the same basic principle. Keep my commandments, for in keeping them you will have life and peace. It helps the child grow up and to understand the rest of the Bible more fully. And this is not something that Solomon himself uh, alone does. Paul does the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6, 
Kids, listen to your parents. This is the first commandment with a promise, that you may live long in the land. In other words, what Solomon's saying is something that's very practical. Here is a very basic principle of training your children in the faith. Obey God, and it will, in fact, benefit you. Solomon's not teaching a works righteousness. He's just talking about the simple benefits of wisdom. Obeying God will benefit you not just in the world to come, but here, now, in this present life. There are two paths. Solomon will continually be setting before his son two different paths. There's life and death. Which one will you choose? Choose life, and you will live long. The question is, what kind of life does Solomon and Scripture have in mind? Reminded of that scene in Lord of the Rings where Bilbo Baggins, after having worn the ring of power for decades, he's speaking to Gandalf. This is on the evening of his 111st birthday. And he tells Gandalf, he says, I feel sort of thin, stretched out, like butter scraped over too much bread. It's been a long life, but in another sense, it's been a very anemic life for Bilbo. He's lived a long time, but he feels depleted. When Solomon here is speaking of life, he is not simply referring to the duration of days, not simply a quantity of time, although that is true. And that is, as we keep in mind, the great hope, the resurrection hope, not just that we will live a really long time, but that we will live forever because of the great promise of the resurrection of the dead as Christ has triumphed over death and hell. But here the focus is not simply on duration of days. It's not simply that of quantity, but that of quality. What is it that Jesus says in John chapter 10? The thief, speaking of Satan, the great adversary of the church, he comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy But I have come that they may have life, that they may have it in abundance. Jesus says that this is eternal life in John chapter 17, not merely the length of days. Rather, he says this, and this, O Father, is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. See, fullness of life is found in the knowledge of God, and knowing God is found through knowing God's Word because that is the primary means through which God has revealed Himself. In fact, we would say the exclusive means through which He has revealed Himself as our great Redeemer. Abundant life consists in communion with God, peace with God, that of wholeness, shalom. It is not simply a life compared to butter being scraped thin over burnt toast. Solomon is saying here, listen to Torah, my son, for here is a guiding principle. Long days and wholeness will be yours in keeping them. Of course, we know the reality. This does not mean that you will not get cancer, or that you will never face trouble, sorrow, or heartache. But again, I want you to think of Proverbs like the kid's catechism. 
This is not spelling out every nook and cranny, every little detail. It is giving basic principles to, by which your life is to be kept. Here, Proverbs is addressed to youth very explicitly. If anything should be taught to our young kids, it should be the book, to the book of Proverbs because over and over again, it is addressed to children. Teaching these basic principles so that you can navigate the more difficult questions that life throws your way as you grow and mature. Solomon is saying, hang on to these basic principles and they will not forsake you. Parents, teach your kids. God's word brings life. Keep it. Not to earn your salvation, that's not the point that Solomon has in view here. But rather that in keeping these things, they have been given for our great good. So that by keeping them, it will guard our steps in this present life. And here we find the great promise, not only of life, but of favor as we turn to verses 3 and 4. Again, note this alternating pattern of commandment and promise. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Why? Here's the promise. There, uh, so that you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Note again uh, that the the, uh, emphasis here is on the practical benefits of wisdom. It's not just for the hereafter, though we know that to be true elsewhere. Here Solomon is is focusing on some really practical benefits that comes uh, from uh, holding fast to the Lord. Verse 4, again, the emphasis we see has to be not only on the life to come, but on this life, because the promise is that if you do this, you will find favor not just with God, but also with men. Again, Proverbs provides these principles that govern this particular life. So Solomon instructs his covenant child, do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Older translations put it like this, do not let mercy and truth forsake you. Uh, the, the words might be translated differently, but the combination of these words are what important. They occur in conjunction together in a number of places in the Bible. Think of Psalm chapter 25 where it says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. They are mercy and truth for those who keep his covenant. Psalm 117, for great is the Lord's steadfast love to us and his faithfulness endures forever. Psalm chapter 85, the psalmist uh, exults in the Lord, for he says here, steadfast love and faithfulness kiss each other. In, in other words, uh, it, it is uh, hesed. It's, uh, it's, that, it's that covenant faithfulness. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's hesed and uh, emet. Yeah, yeah. It's translated a number of ways in the Old Testament. Yeah, um, you'll, you'll find it in a variety of contexts. It's a, there's no one English word that can really encapsulate this, um, but it deals with God's covenant faithfulness to his people. Um, and he, but what I think is interesting here, because this is the word that really describes uh, God's character to his people, his, his hesed love. Um, and it is here that these combinations of words pop up over and over again, speaking of the Lord's own character. Um, the perfections of God, this is how Charles Bridges puts it in his commentary on Proverbs. He says, mercy and truth are the glorious perfections of God. 
always in combined exercise for his people's good. I want you to think of what um, truth would look look like without mercy. That guy who tells it as it is, you don't want to be around that guy. He's the guy who is blunt and who is rude. What you have is ruthlessness. But also imagine mercy without truth. You would have lawlessness. But here we find the perfections of God meet, they kiss, as the psalmist says, that of God's covenant fidelity, his faithfulness, and his truth. Right? The law came through Moses, but what grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Solomon says here the perfections of God's character to us, that steadfast love and faithfulness, that mercy and truth. And as mercy and truth kiss in the beauty of God's holiness, so Solomon says to his son, let mercy and truth meet in all the things that you do as well. See, in a very simple way, in a way that a child can begin to understand, Solomon is telling his son, begin to imitate God in these very things. The beauty of holiness Be faithful. Show mercy. What are the things that the Lord loves? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. These are the things uh, that he loves. To love justice and mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let these qualities adorn your life both inside and out. You see this in verse 3. Let it be worn like a necklace around your neck, outward, but also inscribe it on your heart inward. It's using poetic imagery uh, to, to teach the child this. This should shape all that is within you and without. These virtues should not be temporary, nor ought they to be occasional. Rather, mercy and truth are to permeate everything that you do. So great is the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness to those who fear him. So we should imitate the Lord in this manner to show mercy and truth in all that we do. Very practical benefit, do this, and you will find favor not only with God because you're seeking to imitate God, but you will also find favor with men. Because isn't that the very reason that we've been drawn to the Lord himself? That is the Lord's kindness that is intended to draw us and to lead men to repentance. And so men are drawn to such goodness. Men are drawn to such beauty. You know, if you're just a tell-it-like-it-is, no-punches-pulled kind of guy, you might get the job done, but you will not find favor with men. Alternatively, if you are a guy who always lets miscreants do whatever they want in the name of mercy, all you'll be left with is anarchy. Yet we find in the incarnation the perfect model and picture of what speaking the truth in love really looks like. And that is, in fact, what Paul tells the church to do in Ephesians chapter 4. Solomon is saying here, if you learn to speak the truth in love, men will respect you. So as a guiding principle, it doesn't mean that you won't have enemies, that there won't be people who are out to get you. But here's a guiding principle. Do good, and you will see that men will honor and respect you. You will be known in the community. Isn't that one of the qualities that we see for an elder, that he is to be well-regarded by outsiders for these very futures? Because in doing these things, you will learn what it means to be a child of the king. Once again, we hear echoes of both Moses and that of Joshua. Think of Joshua chapter 1. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Speaking of Deuteronomy. But rather you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For why should we do this? 
for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And isn't that what Solomon says here in verse 4? So then you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Practice grace and truth. Adorn your life as one would wear a necklace with steadfast love and faithfulness, reflecting God's own character. Again, it does not mean that some men will not hate you or that they will grow jealous. We find other instances. Think of Daniel or Esther or others who do good and they are hated on account of doing good. Nevertheless, we find that uh, they are given great favor. Joseph is thrown in prison for doing good. And yet, he finds favor in the sight of Pharaoh and is exalted to the second command in all the kingdom. Here we have that basic principle. People will love the man and the woman of integrity and compassion. Here we have been given a wisdom that helps navigate through the difficulties of this present life. It enables us to manage our affairs given to those who contemplate how to relate to others in a sinful world. It gives us a properly ordered understanding. Uh, uh, some translations and, uh, say that this should be translated, this good success can be translated as shrewdness. You think of it as a sanctified shrewdness. What is it that Jesus says? Be harmless as doves, but wise as serpents. There's a picture of shrewdness there, but it is not the devious, manipulative type of shrewdness of the serpent in the garden, but now uh, the shrewdness of a wise man who has ordered his state of affairs. What we see here is that Solomon, in a very deceptively simple way, speaks to a child hinting at the great difficulty that such a work entails. You see there in verse 3, write them on the tablet of your heart. And again, we're once back, once again taken back to Deuteronomy. It's the very thing Moses tells the nation of Israel three different times. Inscribe this on the tablets of your heart. Circumcise your heart. Those phrases are used interchangeably in Deuteronomy. And yet by the end of Deuteronomy, Moses will end up telling Israel, you're not able to circumcise your heart. The Lord has to do it for you. Here Solomon is using that same language. Because as you learn what it means to inscribe these virtues on your heart, you realize you are not able to do this on your own. Solomon is not giving you a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps approach to the wise life. He is directing in a very simple way uh, it's his reader, his son, to recognize dependence upon God. This is why the very next verses, as we're going to consider next week, are what? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And yet the language here, write them on the tablets of your heart, reminds us of the great promise of a prophet that comes after Solomon. Jeremiah himself, who on reflecting on Moses' command in Deuteronomy, speaks under inspiration of the Spirit and foretells a day coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Israel, not like the old covenant that I made with Israel where I inscribed the law on stone tablets, but rather, in this new covenant, I will put my law and inscribe it on your very hearts. Proverbs 3 hints at the work 
of the Spirit outpoured at Pentecost. The recognition that we need the Lord to inscribe his law, not just on two tablets of stone hanging in a courthouse, but the law needs to be written on our very hearts. My son, do not forsake Torah. It must be inscribed on your heart, but the Lord himself must do it. Here Solomon directs his son to walk in God's ways and hints at the grace that is required to do so as God promises to give strength to his people that they might walk in and keep his commandments. This is the very promise that we've seen fulfilled when Solomon's greater son finally came, the Messiah, to claim the throne as his very own by his resurrection from the dead and his ascension on high. He who, Paul says, is the one full of the storehouse of the wisdom of God who speaks to us through the preaching of the word and prepares us for the glory of the next life by guiding us through the sorrows of this present life. As John chapter 1 reminds us, for the Torah, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Given to us that we might have not just life everlasting, but life abundant. That we might learn by sitting at the feet of our Savior what it means to speak the truth in love, and in so doing to find favor not only with God, but also with man, so that God might be glorified and enjoyed forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that uh, with the simplicity that Proverbs speaks to us, that you uh, would have your word come like a wrecking ball and knock down the walls of unbelief, uh, that we might heed your Torah, and walk in your ways. We ask that you would write your law in our hearts and by your Spirit's power, strengthen us to walk the path of righteousness and to choose life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.